0: Hey, or welcome to Podden, a flat-pack history of Sweden. We're the English-speaking podcast going through Swedish history chronologically. And right now, we've just entered the 1400s. My name is Chris, one of your two hosts.
1: And my name is Åsa, and like Chris says, we have a lot to talk about in this first decade of the 1400s. So much so that we won't finish that decade off in this episode, that's for sure. We are going to continue the story of Gotland as well as the rest of the Kalmar Union with Margareta and King Erik once again at center stage. But before we get on with the story, it's time for another Swedish phrase. This time the phrase is Små har också öron.
0: And that means small pots also have ears.
1: Yes, it's a bit of a weird one, this. First of all, to understand the meaning, it's important to know that in Swedish we sometimes call the handles on a pot if it's got two, like one on each side sort of thing, we call them ears. Just like how in English you can call the handle on a teacup, the ear of the cup. And ear in Swedish is öron. So the phrase smörgrüter har också öron, means that children also hear, listen, and understand things. So you want to be careful with what you say around them. They might be small and, well, less cognitively developed, but they still listen and understand what we say. I'll use a real-life example uh, of this. I remember this phrase came up in my family when my brother and I, we were talking about going to the dentist, and the conversation went into bad experiences we'd had at the dentist, and times when we'd had trouble with our teeth. Then my sister-in-law sort of overheard us, and she just discreetly said, Hey, smörgryter har också öron, calling our attention to the fact that one of my nieces were listening to us talking, and apparently she was due a dentist checkup soon, and Even though that wasn't our intention, it wasn't good that we were sitting there talking about bad dentist experiences because maybe that unintentionally frightened her. So yeah, just like small pots have ears, just like big pots, as in handles, small humans also have ears, just like big humans.
0: We left the story last time with a bit of a celebration, uh, apart from over in Novgorod, I suppose, where they were busy counting their dead after another devastating fire, and that was because we celebrated the turn of the century, especially King Eric was celebrating, because he then came of age and then promptly went on his Eriksgarter around Sweden. He was busy being proclaimed king in all the towns and regions of the realm. We also saw some wrangling over Gotland, something that we will see come to blows later in this episode.
1: Oh yeah, there will be drama. We also had a look at the great herring markets of Skåne and how you weren't allowed to carry your herring in a bag. They had to be carried around in barrels and you're not allowed to sort them on your own ship. I mean, they were just two of the many, many strict rules placed on the merchants at the market to ensure the trade there was smooth and profitable for all. We also teased a little bit about how we would start off this episode with a story that was recently made into a film over here in Scandinavia. The film was called Dortning Margareta." Queen Margareta in English and was released in Scandinavia back in 2021 and abroad it was released under the name Margarete Queen of the North which I think is a bad title that sounds like it could be a very different film
0: One reason is that she's not even really the main character in this story as we'll see but the film does focus on this big event that we've been teasing throughout uh, the story of Margareta Before we jump into that, we'll give you a few fun facts about the film itself, because there's quite a few cool trivia facts about the film. It had the largest budget of any Danish film ever, around 72 million Danish kroner at the end of all of it, and that's pretty much bang on $10 million.
1: I mean, not exactly Hollywood money, but it was big for Scandinavia.
0: Going well, out yeah, the biggest Danish film ever and the filming was disrupted due to the corona pandemic and the production company ended up needing more money to finish it so it was going to have a budget under 72 million but they needed some more and they got this extra top up from a variety of different sources and one of them was the current queen of Denmark's charitable fund and this led to a really fun headline in one of the Danish newspapers which read Margaret II saves Margaret the I because the current queen of Denmark is Margaret. Margareta II. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's actually really funny. The current Queen of Denmark is really interested in the arts, and this fund is there to support Danish culture. So it makes sense. She wasn't just showing favoritism to her namesake and, and the movie about her. She generally makes a generous contribution to the Danish art scene.
0: And Margaret II being around during a film made about her namesake, I think that happened in the UK when Elizabeth II was around, when quite a few films were made about Elizabeth I, so this seems to be a theme.
1: Yeah, maybe. I've actually been to a play where the, like, sonography was made by the current Queen of Denmark. She had that as a little uh, side project. She made like uh, yeah the scenography, the stage uh, decorations for for a play that I went to see at Tivoli in Copenhagen. That's something you can get up to if you're a Danish queen in the 21st century. But should we go back to the 1400s and see what historical event, what event in the I's life that was made into this? most expensive film ever in Denmark a few years ago.
0: Yeah, it's time to find out what led filmmakers over 600 years later to make this epic film. And it's a tale shrouded in mystery and intrigue. And it actually starts nowhere near Denmark. Um, And it starts when a man in his early 30s is going about his daily life in the territory of the Teutonic Order. He's busy living his life in or around the town of Grudenst known nowadays as Grudziats in Poland. Uh, Sorry, Eva and other listeners to the podcast, that was surely said wrong by me there. But uh, yeah, a town in Poland. Back then, it was known by its German name being part of the territory of the German order. And it's a town on the Vistula River, almost exactly 100 kilometers or 70 miles directly south from Gdansk, known back then as Danzig. And this town was focusing a lot of its work on textiles and agriculture. And so our man is busy working on a farm or doing similar sort of work. And one day he heads into the town itself. Now, he's either going there because he's sick and needs some help or he's going to the market. We've seen different accounts. But either way, it's just another normal day for him, a very standard day in medieval Poland.
1: Yeah, so far, so normal. Let's go for the version we've read that says that he's selling eggs at the marketplace As the town is on the Vistula River, merchants and traders could easily come to and from Gdansk and from there all over the Baltic Sea. Our man is maybe shouting out some offers, buy three eggs, get one half price, or something similar, and some foreign merchants, likely from Scandinavia, caught sight of him. One of them is slightly confused, as the man looks a bit familiar, so he goes over to him. I mean, the conversation maybe went something like this.
0: Hello, fine sir. Would you like to buy some fresh eggs? Uh, no thanks. I was actually wanting to ask you about something else, if you don't mind. Oh, really? What's that? Oh, has anybody told you that you look surprisingly like the old Danish king who died 15 years ago? Mm, I don't think so. Which king do you mean? Oh, It's King Olaf II of Norway and Denmark. You, you look just like him. Well, I can't say I've ever heard that before. Are you sure you don't want any eggs? Uh, no, no, that's fine. Just, um, sorry. I just, just thought I'd ask. Uh, have a nice day. Good day to you, sir. I'm pretty sure that's extremely accurate. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. The kind of interaction that happens in every country, probably every day. You know, doppelgangers are all around us. A quick thank you to Jerry from the Presidency's podcast there. Uh, we'll thank him properly at the end of the episode.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think the salesman had Jerry's accent when he was selling the eggs. <laughs> uh,
1: you never know. Our egg salesman continues his day thinking nothing more of it. Before long, a local of Gruden's hears of this lookalike selling eggs at the market and instantly thinks there must be more to this.
0: That's because ever since King Olaf's death back in 1387, there have been rumours spreading all over Northern Europe that he didn't actually die but was just kicked out of the country or hidden away in a monastery by his mother Margareta so that she could take control over Denmark and Norway for herself. We mentioned this at the time when there was a chronicle which said, and the Norwegians didn't believe the story or something. That was because these rumours were particularly strong in Norway. And that was when people were so convinced that Olaf wasn't dead that they went on pilgrimages to the cathedral in Trondheim to pray for Olaf's safe return to power.
1: Classic conspiracy theory right there, you know, that Margareta removed her own son to take power. I mean, as an isolated event in this time a parent removing their child from the picture to claim power for themselves, wouldn't be that surprising. We've seen much stranger and weirder things happen in real life so far in the podcast. But in this instance, there was a very public funeral, many people were present when Iwlov died down in Skjavanne, and no serious figures in public life ever disputed the fact that Olof was, well, and truly dead. But some people down the tavern in the marketplaces over in Norway were stubbornly believing this story, and it had obviously spread as far as central Poland by the 1400s.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately we know how people like a good conspiracy theory. So, yeah, this local person walking around is actually called Time Von Nelo and he thinks that this egg salesman must be the real Olaf and if it is, surely there's a huge reward on offer if you could help him and maybe even get him back to power. So he rushes over to the market and takes this bemused man, starts calling him the king and finds some other merchants from Denmark and Norway to meet him. Our main source for this is a contemporary author from Prussia called Johann von Possilger, who says that the men showered our great salesman with honours and gave him everything he could want.
1: It would be hard to say no if someone started calling you the king and giving you lots of fancy stuff. There are suggestions that our egg salesman, uh, who we are now going to call fake Ulof, for the sake of simplicity, might have had learning disabilities and so might have been less likely to challenge these showers of affection. This might be what some of the sources mean when they call him a sick man. But yes, fake Olof is taken to the city of Gdansk by these Scandinavian merchants who now start to proclaim him as the true king and ruler of Denmark and Norway.
0: Now, this sounds like quite a risky thing to be doing, especially when he's given an engraved royal seal by a herald and is actually really treated like the real monarch that people like Time Von Danelo believe him to be. Because of the rapid escalation of this story, someone going from selling eggs and looking a bit like a dead king one day to being proclaimed an actual monarch and given a royal seal... There are suggestions that political enemies of the Kalmar Union had jumped on this out-of-control bandwagon of a conspiracy theory, or were even behind it from the very beginning.
1: Yes, I mean, was Albert of Mecklenburg behind this, perhaps? Surely anything to discredit Margaretha and politically damage her control of the Triple Kingdom, that was something worth doing. Historians have no evidence of this, but the next steps in fake Olaf's journey do lead you to think that this is more than just a fun adventure. There has to be something else behind it. Albert has also encouraged rumors and slander against Margaretha previously. It would also make sense that this wasn't genuine as surely any Danish or Norwegian merchants would be able to talk to the fake Olaf and ask him a few questions in Danish and quickly find out the truth. That's very strange but either way fake Olaf is now dressing as the king and generally being shaped to be the real Olaf in every way possible. Now the next step is a bold one.
0: Fake Olaf writes a letter to Margareta herself, claiming to be her long-dead son and demands his kingdom back. I mean, wow.
1: These rumours about Fake Olaf being banished away to a monastery, which had been circulating for the last decade or so, had always been a slight stain on Margareta's record, at least in the eyes of the slightly more gullible in society or those willing to believe anything that could be used to threaten both Margaretha and Eric's control over the Kalmar Union. Because, of course, this threatens King Eric as well, not just Margaretha.
0: And on a personal level, you can imagine Margaretha's reaction when she receives this letter from someone claiming to be her dead son. This would have reawakened a huge personal tragedy for Margaretha, who had to bury her only child when he was just 16 years old. Her reaction was probably sadness, anger and disbelief combined. Despite her rage and the insanity of the situation, she does realise that this is now inevitably a political problem. People like Albert of Mecklenburg, if they didn't start it from the beginning, are waiting for something like this to happen to reignite a dispute over the crown. She needs to put this issue to bed before it spirals out of control. And so to do that, she orders two things to happen to tackle the problem from both sides.
1: Firstly, she sets up a truth commission back in Denmark, led by Danish nobleman Volmo Jakobsen Lunge. King Olof was actually said to have died in this man's arms back in 1387 because Margaretha wasn't present when Olof died. So if there was anyone who could lead the investigation and collation of the facts, it was Fulmar. And so Fulmar puts together a formal document in which he swears that the real Olof died in the presence of him, as well as the presence of a royal servant, a cook and a priest at Falstobio castle. This report is then signed by 13 other noblemen who say they were at Falastopil when Olaf died, just not in the room, and they also confirmed the story.
0: So far, so legitimate to me, at least. Part two of Margareta's response is to call the bluff of fake Olaf and his backers outright. She orders Follner to contact the Grand Master of the German Order, Konrad von Jungingen, and the Mayor of Straussund. She wants Olaf to be brought to Kalmar and exposed for the fraud that she is certain he is. That's because fake Olaf is living in the territory of the German Order, so it makes sense to contact Konrad. Despite this, though, it is still interesting she speaks to Comrade and not just send a messenger or a knight to go and collect him. Because, after all, Comrade and the German Order are in the midst of a legal and soon physical dispute over the status of Gotland with Margareta. But he replies to Margareta's letter to say that he promises he will take care of the fake Olaf and ensure his safe passage to Kalmar by sending some of his most loyal followers with him.
1: After all, it's probably in everyone's best interest that there isn't a precedence of old dead rulers popping up to take charge once more. If it happens in Denmark, who is to say that an old grandmaster of the German order isn't the next one to appear and demand old titles back? So that summer, Fake Olof arrives in Kalmar on the 20th of July, accompanied by some German knights. The Chronicles say that Mayaeta, quite understandably, felt incredibly anxious about facing this imposter. After all, she is being forced into this public display to fight spurious politically motivated accusations in what is a highly personal matter. It must have been hard to put up with these rumors and to meet the person claiming to be her son In the flesh.
0: She was so sure that this was a hoax that she said that if it really was her son, he would be allowed to reclaim the throne. But obviously she knew this was never going to happen. It took roughly one minute before the fake Olaf was found out to be false. The main problem being that he spoke no Danish at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a deal breaker right there. And I can't believe they didn't check that all the way from the start.
0: Which implies that, yeah, the up until this point was actually a setup by someone. Because, yeah, surely, like it said, some Scandinavian merchants met him in the beginning and proclaimed him to be the king of Denmark. So, either they weren't Scandinavian or they were paid or forced to say otherwise, clearly.
1: Yeah, so he is ruled out instantly. Uh, he could apparently by now hold his own in a conversation about royal life in Denmark, He had been taught stuff. There are rumours that Albert of Mecklenburg even persuaded, or paid, the real King Ulof's old nanny to teach fake Ulof all about his real version of life events and train him how to answer questions about it. But this obviously didn't include teaching him the Danish language, which is a bit of an oversight, let's be honest. But yes, Margareta instantly calls this man a fraudster and a canale, a trickster, despite the gifts that he had apparently brought for her. I mean, this was surely going to be the only outcome.
0: Indeed, and unsurprisingly, as there was no way Margareta could simply let this man go home with no retribution, the fake Olaf was put on trial for the crime of Les Majestés, a severe form of treason against the monarch personally, and it came with the harshest punishment known by the law. Of course, claiming to be the king was in a way a crime against God, as the king was appointed by God, in the minds of the medieval legal system at least.
1: Yeah, the trial begins, and presumably with the help of a translator, the fake Olaf confessed that he was a Prussian and had been born in a village in modern-day Hungary. In a (laughs) twist of fate, one small part of the story was true – his mother was called Margareta.
0: <laughs> Just not our Margareta.
1: <laughs> no. Uh, his father was called Wolf, apparently. Good to know. Uh, but he claimed that since the merchants and people of Danzig treated him like a king, then surely he had to claim to be one, uh, which is a very, very loose legal argument right there.
0: Uh, well, aren't people only kings because other people call them that? The philosophical question there. It's only by the consent of others that uh, people um, have these positions.
1: Where were you when Fake Olof was on trial? You should have been his lawyer.
0: Yeah, well, you never know. Uh, maybe in another life. But even I, with my legal training and sharp instincts like that, know that this probably wasn't going to stand up in any court, and especially not Margarethe's one, and stand up it did not. Fake Olaf was found guilty and sentenced to death. Historians suspect that this was a joint decision by Margareta and Eric to just end the story this way once and for all. They didn't want a fake king wandering around even if they could then prove that he was fake. It's just too risky to have this person wandering about. After all, both of their positions were threatened by this fake king. That's why the punishment is seen as quite harsh, and actually even at the time. Fake Olaf was sentenced to burn on the stake as a heretic, and the execution was carried out at a symbolically loaded place, in Faustabu, where the real Olaf died 15 years and one month previously.
1: The specific location was the busy market square in Faustabu, and the date was the 28th of September, As we found out in the last episode, this was right at the peak of the herring season. So the town would have been extremely busy and it also would have helped spread the word around the Baltic Sea as so many foreign merchants would have either seen it or heard about it. The Lübeck Chronicle says that fake Olof was made to wear a crown of copper and was mocked by the crowds. Well, that was before being set on fire.
0: I mean, he's probably mocked after he was set on fire as well, but either way, it's very harsh.
1: The Chronicle also says that he was burnt along with the letters he had sent to Magaeta to try and claim the throne back.
0: Overall, a very grim and unfair death, really, and Margareta supposedly stood by the pyre and tore up the seal he'd been using to claim he was the real king, just to make sure more documents couldn't be made in his name. Margareta's presence is debated, though, as this could easily be exaggerated or even invented by the German sources, who in general are very negative about Margareta. The business about destroying the seal is quite important, as many people would never see the king in person, and it took a while for mass amounts of coins to be minted, with not all of them having the monarch's portrait on them to begin with. For example, there aren't any coins surviving from Olaf's reign at all, so we have no evidence what his coins would look like, or if they even got round to making any. The seal was the sort of the royal ID card and used to authenticate important documents, so it was vital for Margareta to ensure this fake version was disposed of. The seal was so important that in many European countries, one of the most important offices in a royal court was the keeper of the seal, who kept the real seal under lock and key, ready for use on official documents. And the keeper of the seal is, I'm sure, also a uh, position in many zoos around the world too. (laughs)
1: <laughs> True. As a minor side note, all of fake Olof's other possessions, the fine clothes he had been given and the gifts he brought for margareta they were given to a monastery. Margaretha would have nothing to do with this. Now, as Chris said, this seems like a very harsh punishment for someone who was either mentally ill, severely manipulated by other actors, or potentially both. This execution does seem to have hurt Margareta's reputation so it isn't just our modern sensibilities making that judgment. She had to write to several local congregations in the following year expressing sympathy for various acts by her bailiffs, uh, something not normally done. Margareta Skanse, a historian amusingly also called Margareta, who writes about Margareta says that this is one way for the Queen to try and get public opinion back on her side again. Margareta also made numerous donations to abbeys and other institutions around this time. So the harsh punishment of fake Olof seemed to have come back and uh, and bit her, really.
0: Yeah, although it's debated exactly how important this was. But... Someone else who was involved in this whole affair was Margareta's chancellor, Peder Janssen Luderhat. And he was originally a religious figure who rose to become a close political ally of the Queen. He's actually had connections with Margareta since 1375, and he was actually part of the investigation in Rome done to approve Saint Begitta as a saint. And uh, like I said, that's because he was firstly a religious figure, but rose to be this increasingly important political advisor to the queen a little bit more background on him is that in october 1379 he was appointed deputy for the examining judge in begitta's canonization process which is run a bit like a trial for six months he examined 20 witnesses as part of this process and his part in begitta's canonization made him very influential in the bridgetine order and in religion in general back in scandinavia after playing such an important role in this
1: A real sign of the internationalization of Scandinavia is that Pedro had actually studied law at the university all the way down in Prague. Petrus Janunus Canonicus Roskildense is a student in the list of the faculty there in 1381. So he did a bit of an exchange program, I suppose, on the way back from Rome. He then became Bishop of Vicre in 1382, an interesting job for a Dane, considering that this is in Sweden and before Mageta was in charge there. He didn't stay long there though, as by 1386 he was back in Denmark as the Bishop of Aarhus. Maybe they didn't understand what he said in Vekva, so he had to go be bishop somewhere else.
0: Yeah, quite quite possibly. But this was also an example of how he got this important job in another country because he played such an important role in canonizing St. Brigitte. And so the Bridgertines basically gave him a cool job as a thank you.
1: It's in the role as Bishop of Aarhus that he helped play a part in ensuring Margareta took control over Denmark after the real Olaf died uh, alongside Drots Henning Pudebusk. After Henning died shortly thereafter Pedro took his place as the Queen's closest advisor. So you can now go back in time and re-listen to all the previous Margareta episodes and just sort of Place Peador there in the background in all these important discussions and meetings and events.
0: Yeah, because at the time it was just another name to add to these long lists uh, when he wasn't actually doing anything in particular, but it's now when he's starting to take actions that are important in the story, so that's why we're introducing him now. Um, Another thing he did was he spoke at the negotiations during the Lindholm Treaty, for example. He then became the Bishop of Roskilde, perhaps the most important position in Denmark at this time. He was then officially confirmed as Margareta's most important advisor when he was named Chancellor. His seal is one of the ten that we saw in the document creating the Calmar Union, or potentially creating the Calmar Union, as we mentioned. Now, one thing he did with his position by Margareta's side was reclaim a lot of money and land that Margareta and her father Valdemar had owed the church. Most importantly, he was given the fief of Faustabul, so the execution of fake Olaf took place in his town. Also relevant to the last episode, he was given all the crown revenue from the Scorner Herring Market for an eight-year period to pay back the debts that the Danish royal family owed the Danish church.
1: Wow, that is huge. I mean, he is an extremely important figure at this time. After the execution of fake Olof, we'll also see how, going forward, Margaretha will gradually become less involved with the affairs of state as more and more is handed over to King Eric. Whether any of this is actually because of her handling of the fake Olof incident or it's just because Eric is older and wiser now, and Margaretha is in her 50s... That's, we don't really know. Whether or not Peedal was part of this process, we're also not sure. But back to fake Olof, just one last time. Will we ever know the identity of this poor man? Uh, Unfortunately, almost certainly not. It is widely accepted that this event was serious, and that Johan von Postlinge's account seems to be correct, as several documents exist which corroborate this strange affair. But it just has to go down as one of those great mysteries, even if Albert of Mecklenburg was potentially behind the whole thing.
0: Indeed, but it is events elsewhere that soon managed to distract Margareta from this whole sorry affair. We're now up into 1403 and Eric's journey around his territories is continuing. This year he's over in Finland and there's not much to say about this visit but an interesting note is that due to the rearrangement of lands and titles since Albert's deposition all the Finnish counties are now under direct management of the crown bringing in a great deal of money. There is one exception, though, and that is Boy, far to the east near Novgorod. This town gets its own town privileges, those trade and, to a certain extent, self-governing rights that let it stand a bit apart from the royal control.
1: We're not sure if Margrethe is also on this trip to Finland with Erik. It might be unlikely, as one thing we do know is that in 1403 she is tearing her hair out not literally, but figuratively, over the situation on Gotland. Years of back and forth with uh, Albert of Mecklenburg and the German order has not led to any progress, and Margrethe decides it is time to sort out the problem once and for all. She starts planning for a big action against the knights in the order and starts working with two long-serving men of the Swedish council. The first was actually her longest-serving ally, a knight called Algot Magnusson, supposedly the first Swedish nobleman to support her in her takeover of Sweden from Albert of Mecklenburg. However, the more interesting of these two men on her side was one called Abraham Brywudersson. Interesting
0: man there, Abraham. I'm just going to call him Abraham instead of the Swedish Abraham, as that sounds a bit weird. But Abraham also has a long association with Margareta. He was present at the negotiations with the Swedish nobleman and Margareta when she was first invited to depose Albert. He later took part in the various sieges of Stockholm. He was then knighted on the same day that Eric was crowned king at Kalmar. A chronicle says of that occasion that amidst all the fine folk present, none shone in manly beauty and bravery of apparel like Abraham Bruderson. So that's a yeah, impressive compliment.
1: Nice.
0: Abraham was a fierce believer in the concept of self-enrichment. Um, that is, ensuring he became as rich as possible. He started off quite young with a focus on local property, strategically marrying a widow to gain control of his first few major farms. He then ruthlessly forced other farmers to sell their farms to him for a fraction of their real value, threatening them with violence or death if they refused.
1: Abraham used Marietta's tacit support of him to use these tactics so often that he quickly became one of the largest and richest landowners in the entire Kalmar Union. He ended up with properties in Småland, Västergötland and even Denmark. It is said by this time he had more servants than the king himself.
0: That's presumably quite a few servants then.
1: Yeah, and unsurprisingly, he wasn't a benevolent landlord or political figure because he is also a district official in Halland, and Finveden. And it is in 1403, when they are planning what to do about Gotland, that Abraham becomes the governor or bailiff of Kalmar Castle. He puts this office to good use, levying heavy taxes and acquiring even more lands from widows, petty nobility, and just unfortunate neighbors. Farmers who did not want to give their property away to Abraham were threatened with imprisonment at Karma Castle. Astoundingly, he amassed up to 600 individual properties or holdings, He was undoubtedly a hard and brutal man who made many enemies. The local people supposedly sang like a little jokey song about him. The whole forest is full of Abraham, they say, which presumably was more fun or striking in old Swedish or at the time. I don't know.
0: Yeah, but you get the point.
1: (laughs) Do you have the nursery rhyme about Abraham, by the way, in English? Uh... Fader Abraham, Fader Abraham, fyra söner hade Abraham, och (laughs) de återdack, och de drack och åt, och sen gjorde de så här. Höger hand, vänster hand, Fader Abraham, and then you like clap with the right and left hand. (laughs) No, No? I've
0: never heard that. So that's sort of roughly when Fader Abraham, he had four sons and they ate things. And drank,
1: and then they did like this, right hand clap. Left hand clap.
0: (laughs) No? No? I've never heard that in either English or Swedish. That's weird. (laughs) But Father Abraham being like the Bible figure, not not this guy. No, no, I'm pretty
1: sure it's the Bible or or the Jewish patriarch Abraham that's referred to in that nursery rhyme. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's more interesting than the whole episode.
1: Chris and I don't have any kids, so that's probably why there's no need to learn nursery rhymes, really.
0: But yes, who better to send than this clapping Abraham figure to take over Gotland than him and uh, Algoth and his brother-in-arms. If Abraham conducts war like he conducts business, you, well, if you call stealing farms business, then he should be the right man for the job. Of course, Margareta needs at least some vague political excuse to attack Gotland, so in August she declared that unless the knights on Gotland submitted what she called an acceptable response to her efforts at negotiation before the 11th of November, she would have to take Gotland by force.
1: It wasn't the biggest surprise in the world when the Germans declined to meet her ultimatum, and so shortly after the 11th of November, a whole bunch of Swedish and Danish troops landed on Gotland. Margrethe's ultimatum was still not met, and as a result, troops under the command of Abraham Brødelsson and Argot Magnusson landed on Gotland, yeah, in November. Hilariously, one person supposedly in joint command with these two men was actually Sven Sture.
0: He's back for another go at Gotland. That's just completely mad. Uh, I bet he was watched like a hawk by alga and Abraham, though, considering he's already defected once. Um, but this time, things actually go much better for Sven. Uh, before long, the whole island was conquered apart from Visby. But as we know, they had some pretty mighty walls, and this time the inhabitants are willing to fight. The German knights manned these walls and resisted every attack, holding on for reinforcements. They couldn't beat the forces from the Kalmar Union in an open battle, but they could try and hold out in the city for quite a while.
1: And hold out they did. They held it long enough that in March of the following year, 50 1,500 knights arrive from Prussia and the Kama Union army is forced to retreat, so that's not good. And their bad luck continues later in 1404 when Mageta raises another fleet to try for a second time to attack the island. This time though the Germans are ready for them. So ready, in fact, that they attack Margareta's fleet before it's even ready, capturing a hundred ships and burning more than 60.
0: This is very much going in the loss column for Margareta there. And it makes two losses in under a year and essentially forces her back to the negotiating table. The Germans also kind of want to end this costly war. They can't just be sending 1,500 knights all over the place every now and then. So in July of 1404, the two sides call an armistice. But Margareta has one more trick up her sleeve, and it's a political one this time. And so she buys Gotland, buys it from Albert.
1: What? Hadn't Albert of Mecklenburg already sold the island to the German knights? Isn't this the whole point, why they aren't leaving to begin with?
0: Oh oh, yeah, that's totally true, but Albert sees it as his right to sell it once again, (laughs) and this undoubtedly and unsurprisingly infuriates the Germans.
1: Uh, How to sell a Baltic Sea Island twice. (laughs) Yeah, this
0: is what he's done. And even if the whole thing is a little bit dodgy, Margareta can now use this ownership in her PR campaign against the German order and try and gain some success on the diplomatic front. Albert got to head back to Mecklenburg with 8,000 marks in a big swag bag and a massive smile (laughs) on his face, whilst Margareta got to once again demand her island back from the Germans.
1: I mean, good job, Albert of Mecklenburg, you just sold an island that wasn't yours to begin with twice.
0: Yeah, brilliant job. The furious knights, of course, refuse any attempt from Margareta to ask for the island back, but deep down they're still feeling that their position is probably untenable in the long term. A few years of off and on negotiations start again and in 1408 the island is finally handed back to Margareta for the price of 9,000 nobles.
1: Good job, Margareta. Shame all those soldiers had to die in the failed attempts to win the island back by force. But now the island is finally back in her hands, bringing to an end an embarrassing political situation and also a potentially dangerous military and economic one. The sum of 9,000 nobles was large, but in the end, it was worth it.
0: Yeah, so she's paying off a lot of money in a couple of years to both Albert and the knights. But uh, yeah, she seems it as being worth it. But what of Eric during these years of political and military wrangling? He wasn't involved in Gotland and doesn't seem to be involved in these negotiations. So what was he doing at this time?
1: Well, one of the things he did was he got married.
0: Ah, good job.
1: Uh, Yeah, this marriage is important politically and also comes with a bucket load of information about it. So we will spend the entirety of our next episode looking at King Eric's marriage, but most importantly, who his new wife is.
0: Yeah, so you'll either have to wait until next time or just hop over onto Wikipedia to find out who she is, but we think it will be a bit of a surprise. It's not necessarily who you might think. It's not Margareta, though, so... (laughs) No, no, that
1: would be a surprise. And it would be weird in a Freudian sense. Before we go, we have a few short thank yous, messages and reviews to share with you. Once again, a massive thanks to you, Jerry, from the Presidency's podcast, for having a bit of fun with the fake Olaf section. We were actually online with Jerry yesterday to talk about something different in history, but you'll have to wait a bit to find out more about what that was.
0: Yeah, but no spoilers there either, I'm afraid. But now over to iTunes and our first review of 2023. In fact, it couldn't be earlier as Taylor the Traveller left us a review on New Year's Day, and it goes like this. Enlightening and entertaining, five stars. I started listening to prepare for an upcoming trip to Sweden and have been loving listening to this duo. It's a great balance of education and funny commentary. I've really enjoyed the field trip episodes.
1: Well, thank you so much, Taylor. That's a great review and we are also looking forward to some more field trip episodes. We really should try and get down to Kalmar at some point, considering we're spending all this time talking about the Kalmar Union. Before we go, we need to mention something from much later in Swedish history, namely the Vasa shipwreck or in this instance should we say brickwreck?
0: Yes, because Linsen and Michelle from Australia went to the Maritime Museum in Sydney the other week where they had an exhibition on famous shipwrecks, but all made out of Lego, hence the brick wreck. Uh, One of them was about the Vasa ship. Minor spoilers if you don't know, but the Vasa is an extremely famous part of Swedish history and a complete disaster. (laughs) It sank a few hundred metres into its maiden voyage and is now resting in the Vasa Museum in Stockholm, probably the most famous museum in Stockholm. apart from maybe the Abba Museum. Uh, We'll definitely talk a lot more about it once we reach the 1600s and that could also be a potential place for an on-location recording if uh, they let us in.
1: Yeah, hopefully... But thank you Michelle for letting us know about the exhibition and for sending us the photo of the cool Lego display of when they salvaged the wreck of the Vasa. We'd recommend anyone in the Sydney area to go and have a look for us seeing as it's a bit far away.
0: Yes, although you've got to be quick because Michelle said the exhibition ends in January at the end of January, so uh, you have about Three days to get there if you're listening to this on the day of release. Uh, otherwise, we'll just have to uh, just pretend we were there. That's probably it for now. You can check us out on all the usual places like Facebook and Twitter, our website, or send us an email like Michelle did to flatpackhistorysweden@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And in the meantime, we will see you later.
1: Goodbye. Hey, Dor.